Chapter Six of Joseph Andrews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dennis Sayers. Joseph Andrews by Henry Fielding. Book Three, Chapter Five. Moral Reflections by Joseph Andrews, with the Hunting Adventure, and Parson Adams' Miraculous Escape. I have often wondered, sir," said Joseph to observe so few instances of charity among mankind, for though the goodness of a man's heart did not incline him to relieve the distresses of his fellow-creatures, methinks the desire of honour should move him to it. What inspires a man to build fine houses, to purchase fine furniture, pictures, clothes, and other things, at a great expense, but an ambition to be respected more than other people. Now, would not one great act of charity, one instance of redeeming a poor family from all the miseries of poverty, restoring an unfortunate tradesman by a sum of money, to the means of procuring a livelihood by his industry, discharging an undone debtor from his debts or a jail or any such like example of goodness create a man more honour and respect than he could acquire by the finest house furniture pictures or clothes that were ever beheld for not only the object himself who was thus relieved but all who heard the name of such a person must, I imagine, reverence him infinitely more than the possessor of all those other things, which, when we so admire, we rather praise the builder, the workman, the painter, the lace-maker, the tailor, and the rest, by whose ingenuity they are produced, than the person who, by his money, makes them his own. For my part, when I have waited behind my lady in a room hung with fine pictures, while I have been looking at them, I have never once thought of their owner, nor hath any one else, as I ever observed. For when it hath been asked whose picture that was, it was never once answered the masters of the house, but Amiconi, Paul Varnish, Hannibal Scratchy, or Hogarthy, which I suppose were the names of the painters, but if it was asked who redeemed such a one out of prison, who lent such a ruined tradesman money to set up, who clothed that family of poor small children, it is very plain what must be the answer. And besides, these great folks are mistaken if they imagine they get any honour at all by these means, for I do not remember I ever was with my lady at any house where she commended the house or furniture, but I have heard her at her return home make sport and jeer at whatever she had before commended, and I have been told by other gentlemen in livery that it is the same in their families, but I defy the wisest man in the world to turn a true good action into ridicule. I defy him to do it. He who should endeavour it 
would be laughed at himself, instead of making others laugh. Nobody scarce doth any good, yet they all agree in praising those who do. Indeed, it is strange that all men should consent in commending goodness, and no man endeavour to deserve that commendation, whilst, on the contrary, all rail at wickedness, and all are as eager to be what they abuse. This I know not the reason of, but it is as plain as daylight to those who converse in the world, as I have done these three years. Are all the great folks wicked, then? says Fanny. To be sure, there are some exceptions, answered Joseph. Some gentlemen of our cloth report charitable actions done by their lords and masters, and I have heard Squire Pope, the great poet, at my lady's table, tell stories of a man that lived at a place called Ross, and another at the Bath, one Al Blank, Al Blank, I forget his name, but it is in the Book of Verses. This gentleman hath built up a stately house too, which the squire likes very well. But his charity is seen farther than his house, though it stands on a hill, ay, and brings him more honour too. It was his charity that put him in the book, where the squire says he puts all those who deserve it. And to be sure, as he lives among all the great people, if there were any such, he would know them. This was all of Mr. Joseph Andrew's speech, which I could get him to recollect, which I have delivered as near as was possible in his own words, with a very small embellishment. But I believe the reader hath not been a little surprised at the long silence of Parson Adams, especially as so many occasions offered themselves to exert his curiosity and observation. The truth is, he was fast asleep, and had been so from the beginning of the preceding narrative. And indeed, if the reader considers that so many hours had passed since he had closed his eyes, he will not wonder at his repose, though even Henley himself, or as great an orator, if any such be, had been in his rostrum or a tub before him. Joseph, who, whilst he was speaking, had continued in one attitude, with his head reclining on one side, and his eyes cast on the ground, no sooner perceived, on looking up, the position of Adams, who was stretched on his back, and snored louder than the usual brain of the animal with long ears. Then he turned towards Fanny, and taking her by the hand, began a dalliance, which, though consistent with the purest innocence and decency, neither he would have attempted, nor she permitted, before any witness. Whilst they amused themselves in this harmless and delightful manner, they heard a pack of hounds approaching in full cry towards them, and presently, afterwards, saw a hare pop forth from the wood, and, crossing the water, 
land within a few yards of them in the meadows. The hare was no sooner on shore than it seated itself on its hinder legs, and listened to the sound of the pursuers. Fanny was wonderfully pleased with the little wretch, and eagerly longed to have it in her arms, that she might preserve it from the dangers which seemed to threaten it. But the rational part of the creation do not always aptly distinguish their friends from their foes. What wonder, then, if this silly creature, the moment it beheld her, fled from the friend who would have protected it, and, traversing the meadows again, passed the little rivulet on the opposite side. It was, however, so spent and weak, that it fell down twice or thrice in its way. This affected the tender heart of Fanny, who exclaimed, with tears in her eyes, against the barbarity of worrying a poor innocent defenceless animal out of its life, and putting it to the extremest torture, for diversion. She had not much time to take reflections of this kind, for, on a sudden, the hounds rushed through the wood, which resounded with their throats and the throats of their retinue, who attended on them on horseback. The dogs now passed the rivulet, and pursued the footsteps of the hare. Five horsemen attempted to leap over, three of whom succeeded, and two were in the attempt thrown from their saddles into the water. Their companions, and their own horses too, proceeded after their sport, and left their friends and riders to invoke the assistance of fortune, or employ the more active means of strength and agility for their deliverance. Joseph, however, was not so unconcerned on this occasion. He left Fanny for a moment to herself, and ran to the gentlemen who were immediately on their legs, shaking their ears, and easily, with the help of his hand, obtained the bank, for the rivulet was not at all deep, and, without staying to thank their kind sister, ran dripping across the meadow, calling to their brother sportsmen to stop their horses, but they heard them not. The hounds were now very little behind their poor, reeling, staggering prey, which, fainting almost at every step, crawled through the wood, and had almost got round to the place where Fanny stood, when it was overtaken by its enemies, and, being driven out of the covert, was caught and instantly tore to pieces before Fanny's face, who was unable to assist it with any aid more powerful than pity, nor could she prevail on Joseph, who had been himself a sportsman in his youth, to attempt anything contrary to the laws of hunting in favour of the hare, which, he said, was killed fairly. The hare was caught within a yard or two of Adams, who lay asleep at some distance from the lovers, and the hounds, in devouring it, and pulling it backwards and forwards, had drawn it so close to him that some of them, by mistake perhaps for the hare's skin, laid hold of the skirts of his hassock, others at the same time 
applying their teeth to his wig, which he had with a handkerchief fastened to his head, began to pull him about, and had not the motion of his body had more effect on him than seemed to be wrought by the noise, they must certainly have tasted his flesh, which delicious flavour might have been fatal to him. But being roused by these tuggings, he instantly awaked, and with a jerk delivering his head from his wig, he with most admirable dexterity recovered his legs, which now seemed the only members he could entrust his safety to, having therefore escaped likewise from at least a third part of his cassock, which he willingly left as his exuviae or spoils to the enemy, he fled with the utmost speed he could summon to his assistance. Nor let this be any detraction from the bravery of his character. Let the number of the enemies and the surprise in which he was taken be considered, and if there be any modern so outrageously brave that he cannot admit of flight in any circumstance whatever, I say, I whisper that softly, and I solemnly declare, without any intention, of giving offence to any brave man in the nation. I say, or rather I whisper, that he is an ignorant fellow, and hath never read Homer, nor Virgil, nor knows he anything of Hector or Turnus. Nay, he is unacquainted with the history of some great men living, who, though as brave as lions, ay, as tigers, have run away. The Lord knows how far, and the Lord knows why, to the surprise of their friends and the entertainment of their enemies. But if persons of such heroic disposition are a little offended at the behaviour of Adams, we assure them they shall be as much pleased with what we shall immediately relate of Joseph Andrews. The master of the pack was just arrived, or, as the sportsmen call it, come in, when Adams set out, as we have before mentioned. This gentleman was generally said to be a great lover of humour, but, not to mince the matter, especially as we are upon this subject, he was a great hunter of men. Indeed, he had hitherto followed the sport only with dogs of his own species, for he kept two or three couple of barking curs for that use only. However, as he thought he had now found a man nimble enough, he was willing to indulge himself with other sport, and accordingly, crying out, stole away, encouraged the hounds to pursue Mr. Adams, swearing it was the largest jack hare he ever saw, at the same time hallooing and whooping, as if a conquered foe was flying before him, in which he was imitated by these two or three couple of human, or rather two-legged curs on horseback, which we have mentioned before. Now, thou, whoever thou art, whether 
amuse, or by what other name soever thou choosest to be called, who presidest over biography, and hast inspired all the writers of lives in these our times, thou who didst infuse such wonderful humour into the pen of immortal Gulliver, who hast carefully guided the judgment, whilst thou hast exalted the nervous manly style of thy mallet, thou who hadst no hand in that dedication and preface, or the translations which thou wouldst willingly have struck out of the life of Cicero, lastly thou who without the assistance of the least spice of literature and even against his inclination hast in some pages of his book forced collie cibber to write english do thou assist me in what i find myself unequal to do thou introduce on the plain the young the gay the brave Joseph Andrews, whilst men shall view him with admiration and envy, tender virgins with love and anxious concern for his safety. No sooner did Joseph Andrews perceive the distress of his friend, when first the quick-scenting dogs attacked him, than he grasped his cudgel in his right hand, a cudgel which his father had of his grandfather, to whom a mighty strong man of Kent had given it for a present in that day when he broke three heads on the stage. It was a cudgel of mighty strength and wonderful art, made by one of Mr. Durd's best workmen, whom no other artificer can equal, and who hath made all those sticks which the bows have lately walked with about the park in a morning but this was far his masterpiece. On its head was engraved a nose and chin, which might have been mistaken for a pair of nutcrackers. The learned have imagined it designed to represent the gorgon, but it was in fact copied from the face of a certain long English baronet of infinite wit, humour, and gravity. He did intend to have engraved here many histories, as the first night of Captain B. Blank's play, where you would have seen critics in embroidery transplanted from the boxes to the pit, whose ancient inhabitants were exalted to the galleries, where they played on catcalls. He did intend to have painted an auction-room, where Mr. Cock would have appeared aloft in his pulpit, trumpeting forth the praises of a china basin, and with astonishment, wondering that nobody bids more for that fine, that superb. He did intend to have engraved many other things, but was forced to leave all out for want of room. No sooner had Joseph grasped his cudgel, in his hand, then lightning darted from his eyes, and the heroic youth, swift of foot, ran with the utmost speed to his friend's assistance. He overtook him just as Rockwood had laid hold of the skirt of his cassock, 
which, being torn, hung to the ground. Reader, we would make a simile on this occasion, but for two reasons. The first is, it would interrupt the description, which should be rapid in this part, but that doth not weigh much, many precedents occurring for such an interruption. The second, and much the greater reason, is that we could find no simile adequate to our purpose. For indeed, what instance could we bring to set before our reader's eyes at once the idea of friendship, courage, youth, beauty, strength, and swiftness, all which blazed in the person of Joseph Andrews. Let those, therefore, that describe lions and tigers and heroes fiercer than both, raise their poems or plays with the simile of Joseph Andrews, who is himself above the reach of any simile. Now Rockwood had laid fast hold on the parson's skirts, and stopped his flight, which Joseph no sooner perceived than he levelled his cudgel at his head, and laid him sprawling. Jowler and Ringwood then fell on his great coat, and had, undoubtedly, brought him back to the ground, had not Joseph, collecting all his force, given Jowler such a rap on the back, that, quitting his hold, he ran howling over the plain. A harder fate remained for thee, O Ringwood. Ringwood, the best hound that ever pursued a hare, who never threw his tongue but where the scent was undoubtedly true. Good at trailing, and sure in a highway, no babbler, no overrunner, respected by the whole pack, who, whenever he opened, knew the game was at hand. He fell by the stroke of Joseph. Thunder and plunder and wonder and blunder were the next victims of his wrath, and measured their lengths on the ground. Then Fair Maid, a bitch which Mr. John Temple had bred up in his house, and fed at his own table, and lately sent the squire fifty miles for a present, ran fiercely at Joseph, and bit him on the leg. No dog was ever fiercer than she, being descended from an Amazonian breed, and had worried bulls in her own country, but now waged an unequal fight, and had shared the fate of those we have mentioned before, had not Diana, the reader may believe it, or not if he pleases, in that instant interposed, and in the shape of the huntsman, snatched her favourite up in her arms. The parson now faced about, and with his crab-stick felled many to the earth, and scattered others, till he was attacked by Caesar, and pulled to the ground. Then Joseph flew to his rescue, and with such might fell on the victor, that, O oh, eternal blot to his name, Caesar ran yelping away, the battle now raged with the most dreadful violence, when, lo, the huntsman, a man of years and dignity, lifted his voice and called his hounds from the fight, telling them, in a language they understood, that it was in vain 
to contend longer for that fate had decreed the victory to their enemies thus far the muse hath with her usual dignity related this prodigious battle a battle we apprehend never equalled by any poet romance or life writer whatever and having brought it to a conclusion she ceased we shall therefore proceed in our ordinary style with the continuation of this history the squire and his companions whom the figure of adams and the gallantry of joseph had at first thrown into a violent fit of laughter and who had hitherto beheld the engagement with more delight than any chase shooting match race cock-fighting bull or bear-baiting had ever given them began now to apprehend the danger of their hounds many of which lay sprawling in the fields the squire therefore having first called his friends about him as guards for safety to his person rode manfully up to the combatants and summoning all the terror he was master of into his countenance demanded with an authoritative voice of joseph what he meant by assaulting his dogs in that manner joseph answered with great intrepidity that they had first fallen on his friend and if they had belonged to the greatest man in the kingdom he would have treated them in the same way for whilst his veins contained a single drop of blood he would not stand idle by and see that gentleman pointing to adams abused either by man or beast and having so said both he and adams brandished their wooden weapons and put themselves into such a posture that the squire and his company thought proper to preponderate before they offered to revenge the cause of their four-footed allies at this instant fanny whom the apprehension of joseph's danger had alarmed so much that forgetting her own she had made the utmost expedition came up the squire and all the horsemen were so surprised with her beauty that they immediately fixed both their eyes and thoughts solely on her every one declaring he had never seen so charming a creature neither mirth nor anger engaged them a moment longer but all sat in silent amaze the huntsman only was free from her attraction who was busy in cutting the ears of the dogs and endeavouring to recover them to life in which he succeeded so well that only two of no great note remained slaughtered on the field of action upon this the huntsman declared twas well it was no worse for his part he could not blame the gentleman and wondered his master would encourage the dogs to hunt christians that it was the surest way to spoil them to make them follow vermin instead of sticking to a hare the squire being informed of the little mischief that had been done and perhaps having more respect of another kind in his head accosted mr adams with a more favourable aspect than before he told him he was sorry for what had happened that he had endeavoured all he could 
to prevent it the moment he was acquainted with his cloth, and greatly commended the courage of his servant, for so he imagined Joseph to be. He then invited Mr. Adams to dinner, and desired the young woman might come with him. Adams refused a long while, but the invitation was repeated with so much earnestness and courtesy that at length he was forced to accept it. His wig and hat, and other spoils of the field, being gathered together by Joseph, for otherwise probably they would have been forgotten, he put himself into the best order he could, and then the horse and foot moved forward in the same pace towards the squire's house, which stood at a very little distance. Whilst they were on the road the lovely Fanny attracted the eyes of all. They endeavoured to outvie one another in encomiums on her beauty, which the reader will pardon my not relating, as they had not anything new or uncommon in them. So must he likewise, my not setting down the many curious jests which were made on Adams, some of them declaring that parson-hunting was the best sport in the world, others commending his standing at bay, which they said he had done as well as any badger, with such like merriment, which, though it would ill become the dignity of this history, afforded much laughter and diversion to the squire and his facetious companions. End of Book 3, Chapter 6 Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California For LibriVox